0: Every year, the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands convenes for an annual summit to highlight the previous year's successful collaborative efforts and to look forward to future opportunities in the land of enchantment. We are taking a different approach to the virtual events this year, and instead of our usual day-long summit, we are hosting this mini-podcast series focused on collaborative efforts. This will be followed by a short summit meeting on April 21st via Zoom. Our goal for the summit this year is not only to encourage y'all to engage with the content of the interviews, but to give you the opportunity to do so from somewhere other than in front of your screens. Thank you so much for joining us today for the eighth episode of the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands annual summit podcast. Really glad to have you here today. I'm wondering if you can take a minute and just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your position with Trout Unlimited and the work you do here in New Mexico.
1: Okay, thank you, Sarah. Again, my name is Toner Mitchell. I have been working for Trout Unlimited for almost A decade here in New Mexico. I'm born in New Mexico, and trout are uh, one of my favorite things, if not the favorite thing of mine. And I I love the opportunity to work for Trout Unlimited. I, I began as a public lands coordinator, which meant that I was involved mainly on protecting natural resources and watersheds. I moved over a few years ago to the Water and Habitat Program which has allowed me to engage in a lot of really fun on the ground projects, a lot of which has been informed by my observation of the Kavira coalition. But I, but I like the fact that I'm, I'm able to kind of adapt to a situation on the ground and address a project according to what the landscape needs.
0: Excellent. Thank you. So The purpose of this podcast is to talk about how important collaboration is for resilience of working lands in New Mexico. So as you know, it's a core ethic of the Coalition to Enhance Working Lands. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about why is collaboration for working lands stewardship in New Mexico important? And how does collaboration happen in your work specifically?
1: Okay, I... I think collaboration is it's an easy word to throw around cuz it, it means everybody gets along and and we all do things together and we you know have great picnic lunches and everybody's happy with each other but but what it really comes down to we really need collaboration to do work around here. I I live and work in Santa Fe, quite a far distance from a lot of the landscapes on which I work. And if not for collaboration, I, I wouldn't be able to make sure that the, the projects that might begin in my brain or in conversations over the phone or little site visits out to landscapes and watersheds, without collaboration, they just wouldn't happen. We, I, think, I think especially on working lands from what I've observed, workforce is, is not a really plentiful thing. So, unless we're able to gather partners together and collaborators, we're just simply not going to get a lot of work done. I, I've seen the incredible amount of work that goes out, goes on on some of the farms and ranches and working lands around New Mexico, and it, I, I just don't see how anyone has time to sleep. So, I just think collaboration is is the key element to getting the the work done that we really need to get done. So as far as how it happens in my work, I've been working for a long time all alone for Trout Unlimited. We're a volunteer organization, so we're able to do a lot of things on a on a volunteer basis, but I'm a, I'm a staff person and I've been alone for a long time and I, I again I simply wouldn't be able to get a lot of really good trout and cold water outcomes without seeking out really important partners out where those fish swim. So in my case, a lot of that has to do with sportsmen, people that hunt and fish. But really, more importantly, lately, it's the rural communities and specifically cattle grazers that have been really important partners for getting things done.
0: That's great. I, I loved what you said about collaboration not being sort of like you know all all picnics and and getting along well. I, I think that collaboration is extremely hard sometimes and takes a lot of intentionality. Thank you for for commenting on that.
1: It's not just something you can dial up either. <laughs> it it's, it doesn't grow on trees.
0: Yeah, it takes a lot of relationship building and trust building for sure. You were talking a little bit about your work, sort of starts with trout and involves sportsmen and then increasingly you're working with folks who are grazing cattle. I'm wondering if you could share with us a, a specific project or a key issue that you're working on currently.
1: Current issue, just because it's most immediate, is we're we're trying to install some water supply wells over in the haymas with the intention of supplying a series of drinkers up and down this grazing allotment. And the reason we're trying to do this is that it's the riparian area below these wells is inhabited by the the New Mexico meadow jumping mouse. And the mouse and the efforts to recover the mouse have hit the grazing community especially hard. For a long time, they've grazed in riparian areas over there where the mouse likes to live. And to be, to be honest, there's been a, an extremely heavy impact from grazing on the mouse. I've seen an opportunity to partner with these grazers in a way that might offset what they're required to do for the mouse's sake, but allow them to operate at a, an expected profit and a reasonable profit as many generations of their forefathers have done. And and the reason I think this is important as opposed to just keeping pressure on this grazing association is that they're the people who day in and day out, they're out there on the land. People have opinions about grazing and what it does to the land, but the worst kind of grazing is the grazing that's unattended, where cows are just out there roaming around. And this grazing association, anyway, they're, they're very active. They love their work and they really want to do it as well as they can, but they really want to be able to do it. And while they're doing that, they are many eyeballs on the landscape. They can see what's going on and communicate it to people like Trout Unlimited and you know anybody else who, who's willing to listen. So it's really important that we have these potential stewards out on the land looking at all the time. And you know they'll they'll do things like put out abandoned forest fires or abandoned campfires before they become forest fires. But another thing is there's this brewing conflict I'm going to call it between recreation and grazing. As a fisherman, I go up a stream and I see a cow pie and I go, oh dang, those grazers are at it again, blah blah blah. But over in the Hamas, you have camping, you have off road ATV riding, and so there are these impacts on the land that. I don't think we can really keep up on unless we have people working that land and paying attention to its health. And so that's a a big current project of mine. And that that kind of attitude and ethic is starting to inform more of my work simply because a lot of these trout streams are on, on very remote areas, especially native trout sites. And if not for the cattle grazers, we really don't know what's going on out there. And we really don't know how to make restoration or conservation projects stick if we don't have them on the ground keeping their eye on things.
0: I'm curious if you have an approach to trying to bring together a conversation between recreation advocates and say the grazing association that's there as a potential point of conflict, are you thinking about or do you have a creative strategy in terms of how you're trying to foster some sense of collaboration between those two groups?
1: I, I guess I don't have a strategy mapped out, but I, I think the first thing involves just simply meeting somebody. I, th- I think this is a time in our history where we're prone to draw conclusions on very insufficient evidence about who we're talking about, and I'm a born and raised tree hugging environmentalist. I, you know, I've, I've spent my whole life just despising cattle and logging and blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff. But I've I've learned a lot in recent years just just that how how do you expect things to get better if you're not going to meet people where they live? And a lot of cattle grazers. Where they live is kind of like what I'm talking about, about this this group of grazers over in the Hamas. They've been there forever. Their families have been there forever. Their their fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers were involved in logging and grazing and what have you, but they're still there. So that's where they live. that That's what matters to them. And so when you look at somebody who grazes animals out on public lands, I've been less and less able to differentiate that between me getting up in the morning and grabbing my fishing rod and heading up to the same landscape to derive pleasure from it. If they're public lands, they're public lands. It's not public lands for fishermen, but kind of, sort of with grazers, that kind of thing. So that's not really a strategy, but I just find I learned so much. If there is a brewing conflict with recreation, I assume I'm going to have to approach some recreation leaders and say, what kind of needs do you have on this? And and we understand that I'm a fisherman and I'm recreating, and then somebody's likes to ride an ATV and they're recreating. But in some sense, a rancher might be recreating. They get spiritual value out of working the land. So how do we get together and say, this is how this works the best? And and fortunately, this is another Kavira lesson for me. I think wherever grass grows, things are going right, um, unless, of course, it's a clear cut or something. But, but it just seems to me that if everybody's working together to make sure we've got grass where it should be, I think we're probably getting along. If I had a billion dollars, I might hire somebody to do a study on that.
0: That's great. Speaking of a billion dollars, I thought maybe I could ask you a couple of questions about your opinion on the call for 30 by 30, which refers to a call from the Biden administration to and a number of really large environmental NGOs across the country to protect 30 percent of the world's land and water by 2030 as part of a strategy for mitigating climate change. I feel like this is a topic that is a little bit contentious in the worlds of working lands because it's not really clear how this will impact folks like cattle grazers in New Mexico who've been here for a long time and have historically had struggles with these kinds of initiatives. What's your opinion about 30 by 30?
1: Well, first off, I need to... Say that Trout Unlimited does have an official position on 30 by 30, and I'm not fully versed on it yet. But as far as I am aware of it, it does approve of the idea of increasing biodiversity in a climate changed world. We're hoping to add a little nuance to that by throwing out a round number of another 20 which involves restoring habitat that's impaired. So that that's kind of trout unlimited. So if what I say differs from that, I uh, I wouldn't want any listener to construe this as trout unlimited's position. These are these are my reflections on 30 by 30, but what I do hope it becomes is a at the very least an attitude shift Towards the importance of biodiversity and towards the importance of adapting our landscape to climate change. Now, as, as a New Mexican and knowing the condition the land used to be in in a lot of places, it really scares me. We have a lot of habitat that we might not be able to protect by drawing a line around it. You know, you could draw a line around a lot of things and, and decide what will or won't go on there, but in the land's current condition, it, it is in a, has degrading ability to sustain biodiversity. And this is a thing of, of mine just driving around New Mexico and seeing, seeing land in a state that I know when I come back in five years, if something's not done to that land, like I said with the grass thing, it's less and less able to produce grass, mainly through erosional things or stuff like that. So I don't know if that specifically answers your question, but what I'm looking for 30 by 30 to do is at least people come to that issue from whatever perspective they have and understand the importance of restoring landscapes. I'm hoping the discussion on 30 by 30 gets a lot more nuanced. That old definition of resilience is like, how do you absorb disturbance and maintain function? I don't think that changes depending on what side of a private land boundary you're on. I look forward to the discussion becoming richer and more nuanced and and I really hope it achieves its goals.
0: Yeah, I I really liked what you had to say about how it's sort of, you know, like particularly in places like New Mexico, hard to sort of draw a hard, fast line around a particular area and say, we're going to protect this, particularly in the arid types of ecosystems that exist in New Mexico, sort of a, a necessity to think like watershed. And I think also you're pointing to sort of needing to really think about what is the definition of protection. You know, is protection just leaving the landscape alone or sort of trying to vacate it of human presence, which actually isn't totally practical or feasible, but, you know, can protection mean involvement by a variety of different types of of land stewards?
1: You asked the question, okay, so you say protection, and the thing that pops in my head a lot of the time, is like, protection from what? A lot of the communities in northern New Mexico, you know, I love all of New Mexico. I think it's an amazing place, but I'm more familiar with the north. A lot of the northern areas, if I ask myself protection from what, it becomes vacating the land of people could possibly be only temporary. So... You vacate the land of people and then in comes a lot of second home development. It's these communities that are tightly wound, you know, they're they're woven together. And and depending on how we play this thing, we could cause societal shifts that leave big pieces of open land essentially unprotected. Say down in the south or southeast in New Mexico where you have these big vast stretches of prairie that I assume are ranch lands, if what we're protecting is also the the stewardship element. We need to protect stewards' ability to keep stewarding. That that's really important. And that's that's something that we should absolutely not take for granted. You know, especially like what we were talking about about collaboration. If we have nobody to collaborate with, then we're going to leave big pieces of land, essentially unprotected. I
0: I really like how you put that. Another thing I was thinking about from your comments earlier about does recreation have a place in this conversation about 30 by 30? And I think the one thing for me that comes to mind is how critical it is to have folks who maybe aren't present on those landscapes as part of their livelihood, aware of what's happening there. And for me, the one way that that happens is through recreation. But what are points in which there can be collaboration or dialogue that can happen with folks whose primary engagement with those landscapes is recreation in a way that's productive and gets them bought into that larger idea of protection?
1: I really love what you just said, Sarah. I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm seeing a lot of examples of how destructive recreation is. And at times I've been skeptical of the thing where it's like you recreate, therefore you're bought in and you're going to see the spiritual value. And I see a lot of people just kind of recreate, but not even care about the resource. So I get I get all grumpy about that, but the way you just expressed it to me was bringing that. Okay, your your way of uh, communicating with the landscape is to recreate on it. Okay, that's that's fine and that's good. So we're going to collaborate with you and with this landowner and with the community that the landowner lives in, and we're gonna we're gonna see how recreation can be additive in terms of stewardship, restoration, in, improving biodiversity and and allowing communities to stay alive through a pretty uncertain future, especially as regards climate.
0: Yeah, I mean I think it's really going to take folks from urban areas and folks from a whole array of different backgrounds and perspectives in rural areas for us to have the shifts that need to happen to make sure that our working lands and all of our landscapes in the state are really resilient in the face of climate change. Maybe coming back to collaboration, um, I'm curious if you can talk about if when you are working on collaborative projects, uh, maybe thinking specifically about the project you're working on in Jemez, what are the ingredients to success in those collaborations?
1: This is kind of shooting from the hip. And I think maybe, Sarah, another example that I'll draw on is work in Cuesta, New Mexico where it's kind of been taken a circuitous path. I don't know if we've succeeded yet, but we've had successes along the way. The original thing in Cuesta was to try and restore a stretch of the Red River that runs through town that was very channelized, probably for flood control, maybe in association with their former mine where everybody used to work. So we restored it. This was about in 2014. And then we sat around and we said, okay, now what? Because you have this restored piece of river and you don't know what you're going to do with it yet. And so we we said, well, it's kind of like you don't buy a Maserati and leave it in the garage. You got to drive it. So it kind of fell into the category of what are we going to do with the economy? Because the mine was closing. So no one knew where to work. So we thought, well, this river should be a a recreational or an economic resource. So that would have been for fishing. It would have been for people to stroll along the banks. There's a nice walking path and everything. But But generally, it got people thinking along the lines of, okay, so we might need a store to sell this thing so that people could go to the river and enjoy it. And then people started thinking, well, we're not just a one stream town. We also farm up here. We have artists up here. We've done things like gone up to the town of Salida, Colorado and see how they adapted to a post mining world and learned our lessons there. Right now, amazingly, I, I can't believe Trout Unlimited is involved with this, but we're trying to build a skate park in Cuesta because we've Recognize the need for youth engagement, the kids in Questo on a skate park. So, we're going to try and help them get it, not by doing all the work ourselves, but to kind of help them through the process where, like, they apply for the grants, they design it, they conceptualize it, all this kind of stuff. But I guess to answer your question, to have success, I guess you have to have an open mind, and that will help you not throw anything off the table. Let's say that's one key ingredient, basically listening and valuing everybody you're working with, I'd, I'd say.
0: That's really wonderful. I I really hope you guys get the skate park built. That sounds so amazing. I was just imagining this great bowl in the skate park that has like a trout mural on it or something.
1: <laughs> you you are amazing. I was just on a meeting before this call. We were talking about it. My day-to-day conundrum is Trout Unlimited does Trout. and. The skate park, I get how it makes its way back to trout, but it's not trout. And everybody on the call was like, let's draw a bunch of trout all over this skate park. (laughs) And it was cool. They thought about maybe naming it Cutthroat Park or something like that. But yeah, it's funny you should come up with that. That's great.
0: Well, I mean, I feel like, you know, the structures in skate parks often look so much like the different fishing dams that are put in in creeks to protect fish. So I definitely think that there's some aesthetic parallels there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It really makes me feel good that you you picked that out because it makes me think that some of these ideas that we were thinking were kind of crazy, maybe you're just kind of intuitive. So that's I really appreciate you saying that.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I commend you for thinking outside of the box and and really thinking very holistically about how to approach the work that you're doing. And I'm curious if you would like to share with our listeners maybe where they can learn more about your work. And also if you have suggestions for things that you'd like to encourage people to read or watch?
1: Well, in the Trout Unlimited video, it's called Querencia, Q-U-E-R-E-N-C-I-A. To summarize it, the Rio Grande cutthroat is a cultural icon of northern New Mexico. So it delves a little bit into the Cuesta story, also in Taos Pueblo. I think as far as other things for people to read, I try to stick to a bi-weekly blog schedule for our National Voices from the River blog. So there's that. And Trout Unlimited's working on kind of a Rio Grande-based campaign where we're going to try and incorporate a lot of these protection ideas, restoration ideas, cutthroat restoration, and community empowerment into one package. We're loosely calling it the Rio Grande Community Initiative. I think it's going to involve a lot of media stuff because we're realizing that New Mexico has so much. And again, I got to give props to Kavira Coalition. Just the way people are getting out on the ground, I don't know how you really improve on that. Too much, unless you're going to really tell those stories. And I think when you, you storytell about things, you get ideas of other things. You also get to know the various characters, regardless of what their background is. If you humanize all these characters, it's less possible to dislike them. I, I think, to your point, Sarah, producing a lot more media products is something we're hopefully going to be able to to do in the near future.
0: Fantastic. Well, I will be sure to get some of those from you and include it with the supplemental material. I also really appreciate you um, taking some time to chat with us today. And also just a lot of gratitude for not only the projects that you're doing on the ground, but the way that you're approaching them. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it.
0: I'm Sarah Wenzel-Fisher, and this concludes another episode of the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands podcast. Again, this is one of a handful of podcasts the Coalition will release leading up to our annual summit. The summit is scheduled for April 21st at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and will be held via Zoom. For more information and to register for this year's summit, go to nmcewl.org slash annual summit. Again, that's nmcewl.org slash annual summit. We'd love to see you there and thanks for tuning in.